Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello again and welcome back once more to episode 22 of Signals to Danger. Back on schedule, arriving on time, no delay repair claim necessary. We're back to our two weekly release times. As I do every episode, I'm going to open by thanking you for your downloads, shares and likes and your interaction on social media. And I'll remind you that should you want to join these conversations, you'll find the podcast at at Signals to Danger and me at at Daniel Fox Rail on Twitter. And the podcast is on Facebook and Instagram as well. As ever, I'll remind you about our website, SignalsToDanger.com. On there, you can find show notes, transcripts, the shop and more. And while you're on there, there's also a page on how you can support the podcast if you want to. There's a link for the Patreon, and I'd love to take this opportunity to thank Douglas, Jim, Zen Fox, and Martin, who has literally just snuck in about an hour or so before the recording, for signing up. Speaking of friends of the podcast, this episode actually came from a suggestion from a regular listener, Julia. You know who you are. Thank you for bringing this one to my attention, and hopefully I do the story justice for you. Now... As a sign of getting back on track, I, for a start, have a bit of a sore throat again, which is such a staple of the first 20 episodes, but I also decided that it might be time to revamp the opening credits, so now it's time for our brand new version to play us into this week's episode. The platforms above the leafy suburb had become a hive of activity. The shouts and cries of rescuers, railwaymen and children filled the air as people desperately fought to free the trapped. The year is 1964 and the place is Cheadle Hume. Carriages are crushed one on top of another. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I am Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. We start every episode by briefly revisiting the events that were taking place at the time, and this one is no different, so it's time for us to have a look at 1964. On the 1st of January, a staple of UK television was born, and between then and 2006, it formed a fundamental part of our culture the longest-running weekly music show in the world. 
Of course, it was Top of the Pops. Later in the month, the trial of 11 of the great train robbers began in Buckinghamshire. We spoke briefly about them in the last episode, but in 1963, a 16-strong gang of London gangsters held up a mail train, stealing £2.6 million, which is around £55 million when adjusted for inflation today. Unsurprisingly, the resources of the police were poured into catching them, and following the trial, most were handed incredibly stringent sentences of between 20 and 30 years. This wasn't the only criminality under scrutiny in 1964, though. Over the course of the year, both Keith Bennett and Leslie Ann Downey went missing from the Manchester area. Unfortunately, time would teach us that both had become victims of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, although the moniker of the Moors murderers would be how they would become better known. In better news, March sees pirate radio station Radio Caroline take to the airwaves. Again, this was technically a criminal act, but far, far less harmful than the ones we've talked about so far. Over the next few weeks, it was joined by several more pirate radio stations. September saw the release of the Sun newspaper, replacing the Daily Herald, as well as the release of the Bond movie Goldfinger. October sees Rhodesia become the independent Republic of Zambia, seeing off 73 years of colonial British rule. And on the 23rd of December, Richard Beeching announces his intention to resign as chairman of the British Railways Board after three and a half years. During his tenure, he proposed the closure of many smaller and financially non-viable services on surviving lines. This became known as the Beeching Acts, and there's still ill feeling today from some parties as a result of the decisions that were made. So this wraps up another eventful year, but as ever we need to focus that down to one day. And this time round, we're talking about the 28th of May. As far as the map of Britain's railways looks, Manchester is fairly prominent. It's no London in terms of stations, but the city centre itself sees four central stations. Piccadilly, Victoria, Oxford Road and Deansgate. From those stations, lines span out across the north and up into Scotland and south to the capital. Edinburgh, Liverpool, Newcastle, Doncaster, Cardiff, London and many, many more locations can all be reached on direct services. This web of rails stretches out across the country, and every day people travel hundreds of miles. But like many other urban areas, it's not just long journeys made to and from these stations. Manchester had a thriving, pre-Covid, commuter crowd. The Metropolitan County of Greater Manchester, which incorporates some adjacent towns in the city of Salford, has a rail network of 130 miles of track and 92 stations. The lines into the city centre are predominantly split into north and south, with many of the routes terminating in Manchester, Victoria, from the north, and Piccadilly to the south. Over the years, some connecting lines have been introduced to allow traffic from each side of the network to cross over. Firstly, in 1988, to allow traffic from Salford to get south towards Oxford Road and Piccadilly. And more recently, in 2017, the Audsall Cord was introduced to allow traffic from Victoria to travel directly through to Manchester, Piccadilly. Commuters into the city arrive at Manchester, Victoria from the towns of Ashton-under-Lyne, Rochdale, Salford, Eccles, Bolton and further afield. In fact, it was an old commuter line into Victoria, which had been now converted into a tram line, that featured in our fourth ever episode, which seems so, so long ago, Irk Valley Junction. But that's enough about the north of the city. We're not here to talk about the north of the city today. Today's episode focuses on the other half of Manchester's commuter spread, the south. The lines from Manchester Piccadilly. Here, trains arrive from Sheffield via the Hope Valley, the Peak District towns of Glossop and Hadfield, the southern suburbs of the city towards Sale and Didsbury. One of the strongest links into Piccadilly actually comes from the town of Stockport and its suburbs around six miles to the south of Manchester city centre. 
And that is where we start to focus in on the subject of today's story. One of the many lines leaving Manchester was the crew line. This line, originally a venture of the Manchester and Birmingham Railway Company, was built between 1840 and 1843, including an imposing viaduct over the River Mersey, shadowing the town of Stockport in the valley below. In 1942, a station was built in the suburb of Cheadle Hume. Originally a normal sort of two-platform station on the line through the area, in 1945 a change was made. A new branch of the railway was built between Stafford and Manchester, and the junction where this line joined the crew line was just south of the existing station at Cheadle. The station was knocked down and rebuilt over the junction itself, meaning that instead of two platforms, it ended up with four two of them on the original straight line sword crew, and some of them curved along the tracks as they came to the junction with the, norm, with the main line. The station remained like this into the next century, which brings us up to 1964, and the story of the Lollipop Express. As railways expanded in the 19th and early 20th centuries, it brought about a revolution almost as important as the industrial one which birthed it. A social revolution. Almost overnight, a population previously tied to their own towns and villages were handed affordable access to other towns, cities, resorts. Those who lived in the middle towns of West Yorkshire could afford to get to the Yorkshire coast for a holiday, and families separated by swathes of the country were able to visit each other more frequently, where they previously might not have ever been able to do so. Alongside this, the railway birthed the commuter that we know and love today, and as the network grew and created these spider's webs around our cities, it became increasingly feasible for people to live where they didn't work. But we know that, and we know that's why stations like Cheadle existed. The affordability of rail travel actually gave rise to a whole other type of train. The special. Specials were, and indeed still are, trains which sit outside of the normal timetable. When we spoke about rail tours in the episode on Wooden Bassett, those are classed as special trains. Outside of the heritage scene, however, you can see specials for such reasons such as football matches. Special trains put on specially to get fans from one place to another for matches. Although I often wonder if that's really far more for the benefit of normal travellers. If we rewind the clock to the middle of the last century, special trains were a lot more frequent. With the comfort and availability of coaches and a motorway network not yet anything like it is today, rail was by far the best option for day trips, school trips, church holidays, excursions... And these organisations, such as churches and schools and local authorities and employers, would work with the railway, be it British Railways or the big four that came before, to arrange the provision of these trains, special services to take day trippers and holiday makers across the country. And it's one of those trains which we need to focus on today. The Lollipop Express, which isn't something I've personally made up, Although, in a remarkable coincidence, as I write this exact sentence, I'm sat on a train next to my two-year-old daughter, who is eating a lollipop. No, this is a nickname that had already been given to one specific special train in the spring of 1964. The service started in the village of Norsall in the county of Stafford, and would call at Stoke and Macclesfield as it headed north, before travelling across the country over the Pennines, and through to the historic city of York. As much as I'm always waxing lyrical about its significance to the railways, I have heard a rumour that York has some significance outside of that. And I suppose it's true. An historic city with walls, Roman heritage, beautiful buildings. York has always drawn the attention of tourists, for as long as tourists have existed. The Lollipop Express consisted of nine carriages, predominantly full of parties of schoolchildren, 
over 230 of them in fact. They were headed to the city for a day trip to visit the castle, the Minster and the Railway Museum, one of my personal favourites. I'm sure the mood was high and the excitement of the children on board must have been obvious to everybody there accompanying them. At 7.55 in the morning, the special had left Norsall and with a passed out fireman at the controls, Mr Smith, the Class 5 steam locomotive at the head of the train made its two calls at Stoke and Macclesfield before continuing on towards Greater Manchester and then the journey east that would follow, over 200 children laughing and singing in the carriages behind. As the Lollipop Express approached the southern side of Manchester, it was nearly brought to a stand by signals at the village of Adlington. When they cleared, Smith opened the regulator up on the locomotive, increasing the speed to around 60-65 miles an hour. A few minutes later, as the train passed Bramall's signal box, he made a light brake application, bringing the speed back down to 40 miles an hour. The train was now on the approach to Cheadle Hume Station. All that was remained was the right-hand bend into the junction through the platforms. Halfway along the curved platforms of the station was an underbridge. This is a point where the railway is carried over the road by a bridge. The A5149, imaginatively named Station Road at this point, ran underneath the platforms of the station at this point. And the reason that this is important is that in May of 1964, some substantial works were taking place here. The road was getting busier and busier, and so therefore the road needed to be widened. For the road to be widened, the bridge needed to receive the same treatment. In order for the works to be carried out, a temporary bridge had been constructed at Cheadle, and speed restrictions were in place through the Macclesfield platforms to support that. 10 miles an hour. Smith later told investigators that he had used his brakes to make further applications as he approached Cheadle Hume, and he estimated that he had reduced speed to 10 to 15 miles an hour before reaching the platforms of the station. As the train travelled through the platforms, it became clear to the footplate crew that something had gone awry. Fireman Gilliatt, in the locomotive with Smith, looked back along the train and saw that the third and fourth carriages of the train were jumping about. He shouted a warning to Smith told him to stop the train. Smith, in turn, made a full brake application and brought the train to a halt, the locomotive coming to a stand around 700 feet beyond the platforms on the main line towards Stockport. Smith and Gilliatt were fine, as was their locomotive, and the two carriages immediately behind it seemed unscathed as well. However, the third carriage, the rear bogey of that, had derailed. It was still upright and coupled, but a derailed bogey is never a good sign. Just behind it, however, was the fourth coach. This one lay on its side across the tracks of the junction. Aside from the fact it was overturned, it was only lightly damaged considering it had been dragged along the rails on its side. But damaged it was. Beyond this carriage, there was a 400-foot gap which didn't board well for the five carriages behind. The fifth and sixth coaches had turned over against the platform edge and been dragged along it. The left-hand sides of these coaches were simply destroyed. The bogies of the fifth coach had been wrenched away and were in a tangled heap under the sixth coach along with its bogies. Examination of the drawbar hook at the leading end of the fifth carriage showed that it had torn, it had been destroyed by the forces involved, and that was most likely what caused the separation of the train. The 7th and 8th coaches were partly on the bridge, but were also leaning to the left, but damage to their bodies was more or less limited to a few displaced seats, and the ninth coach was more or less upright on the bridge, with its rear bogies still on the rails. 
When I describe the carriages here as being on the bridge, I'm using the phrase slightly loosely. The temporary bridge had consisted of three spans, each composed of tracks running over wear beams, an arrangement of I-beams cross-braced with each other to support the running rails. The track over the second and third spans in the direction of travel was destroyed, as it was over most of the platform. The front bogey of the ninth coach and the rear one of the eighth had moved to the outer side of the curve when the track over the bridge was destroyed, and was straddled across the outer wear beam. So technically they were on the bridge, but the tracks had more or less been taken out of the equation. It was clear to look upon the scene that something disastrous had taken place, and those working on the train, the station, and in the signal box knew that the response needed to be immediate. The guard on the Lollipop Express was H.J. Davis. He was travelling in the rear carriage of the train and had escaped any major injury. Davis walked along the train, warning rescuers against going on top of the coaches until power had been cut off. The line to crew was electrified, and the spur to Macclesfield was shortly to follow, but so far, only the platform section had been completed. Davis saw a railwoman speaking on the electric traction telephone on the platform, and assumed that he was arranging for the power to be isolated. But he did say that nevertheless, he asked the signalman as soon as he reached the box to make sure that the power was off. Rescue work was undertaken as quickly as possible, although the damaged carriages made the work difficult. 27 people were taken to hospitals, most of them children, and at least two of the children ended up having to have limbs amputated. One of the female students remained in a coma for three months, her parents taking turns standing vigil by her bedside. Tragically, a British rail representative travelling on the train who had helped organise the trip did not survive the accident. And this person was joined by two of the children, Louis Stevens and Christine Heffernan. A dream day out had quickly turned to disaster and what should have been a happy memory for the children was quickly replaced by both physical and psychological scars. The disaster at Cheadle Hume tugged on the heartstrings of the nation. The nature of the victims and the fact that this should have been such a positive experience meant that the story hit hard. It was clear that the incident needed to be investigated fully, and so Colonel W. Reed and his team from the Railway Inspectorate arrived with the intention of providing these answers. It wasn't just the people of Cheadle, Stafford and Stoke who needed that answer. These types of carriages and infrastructure was used all over the country. Everyone needed to know that their journeys were safe. As ever, a number of questions needed to be answered by investigators. Firstly, the train had clearly derailed, but what mechanism had been responsible for that taking place? What is it that actually caused the wheels of the train to leave the rails? Secondly, once the mechanism was discovered, had it been caused by any external factors? And finally, had any opportunities been missed to prevent the accident? or to limit its severity. Once these questions were answered, Reed could report back to the Ministry of Transport, and hopefully the industry could be made safer for the future.
The fact that the Lollipop Express had derailed was clear. All but three carriages were laid in various states of distress along the platforms of Tiddlehem Station. It's been a while since I've dragged you all through my chain of inquiries on how derailments take place, so I think I'll kind of crack it out again. Most derailments can be chalked up to one of a few reasons, be that inappropriately excessive curves in the tracks, issues with switches and crossings, either failing or being used incorrectly, another component failing, or that old chestnut, human error. So in the spirit of previous episodes, let's unpick the derailment at Cheadle. We know that the platforms at Cheadle leading from Macclesfield were on a curve. We discussed that very early on in the episode. But was the curve excessive? Not particularly. The speed through the station was routinely limited to 45 miles an hour, and the accounts of the driver, fireman and guard of the express all tallied with that speed not having been exceeded. The curve was certainly present, but it was mitigated for. In fact, at this point in May 1964, the 45 mile an hour speed restriction was a little bit of a moot point. As because of the bridge works on the station, a temporary speed restriction was in place. A 10 mile an hour temporary speed restriction. This curve was certainly not too excessive to be taken at 10 miles an hour. Chalk that one off. Second option then, were there any switches or crossings to interfere with the safe running of trains? Well, Cheadle Hume Station is placed on a junction, so yes, there are switches and crossings at the location. How else would trains get from one line to another? To understand whether or not the switches and crossings at this location caused the accident, we need to look at their locations in relation to resting places of the train and its wreckage. The first three carriages in the locomotive had passed through the junction unscathed, and the fourth coach lay on its side more or less in the middle of the junction, but this was by far the least damaged portion of the train. The fifth carriage through to the ninth, the most heavily damaged, was still in the platforms of the station. The severed draw hook on the fifth carriage would have been caused by the forces of the derailment, and its resting place meant that at the point it sheared, it was nowhere near the point work of the junction. And when you add this into the fact that no real issues were found with the points, it's relatively clear that failed or damaged points were not to blame for this accident, crossing that box as well. And this leads us on to the third option then. Perhaps another component had failed and caused the accident. As part of the investigation into Cheadle, the track and train were investigated for failures. Much of the train itself was heavily damaged. The latter half of the carriages had loads of damage to the underframe, the bogies and brakes. They were ripped from some carriages and heavily damaged on other. Fittings were loose. It was a fairly sorry state of affairs. Driver Smith had not made any complaints about the brakes or the running of the train, but as a matter of course, they were examined. Brake tests were made on the undamaged part of the train and the brakes were found in good order on the engine and the first three coaches. Tests on the remaining coaches weren't possible because of the damage, but nothing amiss was found that wasn't attributable to damage of the derailment itself. So train faults are out of the picture. Investigators turned to the track. Working back from the locomotive, there was some damage caused by the derailed bogey and the derailed fourth carriage, but at the point where you reached that fifth carriage the track was pretty much destroyed underneath the derailed coaches. When we get damage like this, one of the best things we can do with it is trace it back along its length to reach the origin. Normally, the first piece of damage is usually around about where the accident began. So, as investigators made their way back along the platform, they finally reached the temporary bridge. This is where they found their answers. Two of the spans had fully destroyed track, but the first one, the one closest to Macclesfield, and the first one our train would have passed over, was not completely destroyed. There was clear evidence that the track had been pushed outwards over the waybeams and that the clamps had failed to hold it. Clamping bolts were bent where they had been forced against the edge of the beam flange, and some had been pulled through the sleepers or the transoms of the bridge. Many of the sleepers on the bridge had snapped close to the chair of the outer rail when the sleeper was no longer fully supported by the wear beam. 
In fact, the weigh beams underneath the outside rail had moved outwards approximately five inches, the bolts of the plates having sheared, which is a lot of words, but it essentially means that there was pretty substantial damage here to a critical component. And it told investigators exactly where the derailment had occurred. Something had literally burst apart the tracks over this temporary bridge, and as each of the vehicles of the train passed over, they derailed in sequence, bringing destruction to a sleepy Stockport suburb. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. As ever, the what is not enough. The why needs answering too. It's great to know that the burst tracks of the line over the bridge caused the derailment at Cheadle Hume, but it certainly is not enough to leave it there. The root cause needs to be found, and to that end, the investigation continued. One factor was clear though. The damaged tracks had happened as the Lollipop Express traversed the bridge. It could not have happened before. The state of the tracks over that first span meant that the locomotive and first three carriages would never have made it over in the condition that they did if that damage was pre-existing. The damage had to have been caused as the train crossed over. So the next step was understanding what had caused that to happen. This bridge structure was temporary, but it didn't equate with being any less safe or secure. It just meant that it wasn't going to remain in that state forever and that there were restrictions as to how the bridge could be used. But that's why the speed over the bridge was so restricted. As with many other structures on the railway, this bridge was also subject to stringent design standards and rigorous inspections. The bridge fully met the standards required, so that was written out quite quickly. The design was fairly standard, and it was functional without issue. And it had been built in a way that reflected that. The next place that the investigators turned their eyes was to the inspections of the bridge. Virtually every single structure on the railway is subject to routine, regular inspections, and temporary structures are no different. We've seen time and time again that a missed inspection can lead to a missed dangerous condition. Critical components can fail, and if not caught, they can lead to disaster. Greyrig, Doncaster, these are fairly recent episodes that we've had where exactly that happened. Potter's Bar, Hatfield, the list goes on. We won't go through it all. However, the inspection regime here seemed to have been carried out comprehensively. There were inspections which were daily in respect of the track, and three or four times a month for the bridge structure itself. Mr Kelly, one of the men questioned, said that in addition to the weekly inspections, which were visual, he tested the bolts about once a month with a spanner, the last time being on the 29th of April. But he had never found the bolts to be loose. 
He had a gang of four men who worked systematically on a number of temporary bridges, and they had last worked on this one on the 3rd of May, with no issues found. Mr. Parry, the other man with responsibility for inspecting the bridge, he said that he would regularly test the tightness of the bolts by tapping them during his inspection, or he would watch their behaviour while trains passed over by standing beneath the bridge and watching them. And all of this meant that there didn't really seem to have been any faults with the bridge. The design was sound, the inspection regime was sound, and no issues had been found before the accident. So does that mean that there was no obvious cause to this disaster? No obvious reason why three lives, two of them children, had been lost? Unfortunately, it does not. If we briefly go back to the first question, there was one other reason for derailments, which we never quite got to. Human error. There was a 10 mile an hour restriction over this bridge. This would not put excessive forces on the track or the temporary structure. Smith, in control of the train, estimated that he had reduced his speed to 10 to 15 miles an hour before reaching the platform. Even at the top end of that, there's a healthy margin for error in these things. Unfortunately, Smith's opinion was not reflected in the accounts of others who had seen the accident take place. When Smith went up to the signal box at Cheadle immediately following the accident, the first question he was asked by the Bobby on duty was, why did you approach so fast? Signalman Dillon was a regular at the box, and he was familiar with what trains looked like at the right speed. His thoughts were backed up by a supervisor who'd been working around the bridge at the time. The roar of a train approaching at speed was so unusual that he, well, he walked from his cabin and stepped outside to watch the train pass. He was greeted with the sight of a derailment taking place. As well as him, the accident was witnessed by several members of the civil engineering staff, both those concerned with general track maintenance and those with the bridge works. They were all of the opinion that the train had approached at a speed, well, greatly in excess of the restriction at this point. Eyewitness accounts are not quite enough, though, to seal the deal, and we know that we love a bit of maths on this uh, on this show. So let's look at how the investigators backed up those theories and worked out what the speed actually had been. Investigators looked at the timing for the journey that the guard had provided. The journey between Macclesfield and Cheadle was recorded as having taken 14 and a half minutes. When you account for the adverse signal at Adlington and nearly coming to a stand, that time is not consistent with a speed of 10 miles an hour through Cheadle. It's not really that close. There was another calculation that was taking place based on the final location of the locomotive and the first few carriages. Engineering knowledge and physics showed where the train would have stopped had it been travelling at 10 miles an hour when the derailment took place. And that location just did not add up. The actual speed that would have been needed to lead to where the engine did come to rest, allowing for the severe slowing caused by the derailment itself, matched with the number that was reached when the timings were worked out. The Lollipop Express had not hit the bridge at 10 miles an hour. It had done so at 45 miles an hour. The heavy engine had burst the tracks, pushing the temporary fixings to their limit and beyond. The first three carriages continued to spread the tracks further apart until the last bogey of the third derailed, followed by the next one and the next one and the next one. Smith didn't change his story. When it was pointed out to him that the heavy damage to the coaches and the distance which his engine and the first four coaches had travelled after the train became divided, and the brake was fully applied, was inconsistent with the derailment at 10 miles an hour. Smith's answer simply said that he couldn't account for it. Despite the fact that he told inspectors he was fully aware of the speed restriction, 
Smith had failed comprehensively to abide by it, and as a result, two children and a colleague were dead. Even if Smith had forgotten the speed restriction, we know from previous episodes that there should have been a reminder of it. Temporary speed restrictions are something very heavily regulated in the industry, and they're also something that's not that rare. Train crews, even as early as the 60s, received weekly notices which included any alterations to tracks, speeds, signals. You name it, if it was different, it was in there. Smith, alongside all of the drivers who signed this route, received these notices. Despite the fact he hadn't driven trains on the route for some time, he should still have been fully aware of this restriction, but yet he didn't abide by it. There are additional protections in place, as well as the notes on the notices. Speed restrictions were all backed up by signage on the ground as well. The beginning of such a temporary speed restriction is shown by a C, indicator illuminated at night for each track at the site with warning boards at breaking distances on the approaches. These warning boards comprise a horizontal plank of wood painted yellow with a V-shaped point at one end and a fishtail at the other, kind of like a semaphore signal arm. The board has two holes around two feet apart with signal lamps inside it with yellow lenses so it's visible at night as well. The board and lamps are fixed on a short post in the ground on the left-hand side of the track which they refer to and above the board is an illuminated figure which reminds drivers of the speed they need to be travelling at when they reach that C indicator. The dimensions of the board weren't strictly <laughs> laid out in the rule book, but the usual length was around about 5 feet and is about 1 foot thick. Now for restricted locations, so where there was not enough room next to the gap next to the tracks, a much shorter board could be used with the lamps closer together. And at the end of each restriction, there was a separate indicator with a T symbol on it. And on these boards, C stands for commencement and T stands for termination. Dead easy. So, were these signs in place at Cheadle? The C indicator on the down line was around 100 yards from the bridge and the warning board three miles away close to the home signal for Bramall Loop signal box. That warning board, however, was just a short, unpainted plank with two holes close together for the signal lamps. It was not pointed. It was not notched. This design wasn't standard, and it might not have provided the same warning to a driver as a standard one would have done. You could argue that it was. It looked like a warning board in the same way that some NAF cars look like good cars, but it wasn't the same thing. The investigators acknowledged that the boards are a warning signal to the driver, and they should be of a standard design and brightly painted to ensure that, as far as possible, that they will not be overlooked. And this one just did not meet that, that that spec. It doesn't excuse Smith, though. He had the notices. He should have been on the lookout for a warning board at this point. And even a non-standard sign should probably have been noticed by the drivers. It was there and it meant something. Maybe that should have been able to jog his memory about the restriction that was coming up. The commencement board itself was only around 100 yards from the point where the tracks burst. So even if he had seen that, having not slowed down for the warning board, it's unlikely that he would have been able to slow his train in anything like the significant way required before the damage was done. Smith failed to carry out his duties properly, but the situation was not helped by incorrect signage. Frustratingly, Technology which could have prevented this already existed. 
If we throw our minds back to the episode on Nuneaton, we discussed a speed restriction sign that was missed at night because the lamps had failed. One of the outcomes of that was the expansion of the automated warning system to include fixed magnets at temporary speed restrictions. Admittedly, we are skipping forward a decade with that crash, but AWS, the automated warning system, had been around for over a decade before this point. Firstly introduced to provide an in-cab warning of adverse signal aspects, the system was far more widely introduced on British Rail following the Harrow and Wheelston um, crash, but it had been in some form in existence for decades on the GWR. But what we actually found later on that we could fit a different type of magnet at the commencement of a temporary speed restriction and that would provide a good, reliable reminder to drivers that something needed attention at this point. And over the years, AWS became widespread at all permanent speed restrictions, all most temporary and emergency speed restrictions, all now in fact. Anyway, the point I'm making is that had we, as an industry, learnt that lesson or had that idea before 1964, Driver Smith could have driven over a magnet at the start of that warning. It could have reminded him there was a speed restriction and it could have reduced the speed of his train in time. Had those lessons been learnt before 1964, then the lives of these children could have been saved. But on top of that, had the potential use for AWS in this situation been thought of in 1964, following this disaster, well, maybe we could have prevented Nuneaton as well. The derailment of the Lollipop Express took place over 55 years ago, but this isn't quite long enough for living memories to fade. Even in the last few years, news outlets from Greater Manchester and Staffordshire remember the accident in throwback articles on this day in, this many years ago. The BBC ran an article in 2014 speaking to John Gibson, a man who at the time had been a nine-year-old boy whose life was changed forever when he lost an arm at Cheadle Hume. They also tell the story of Mary Teenan, the little girl who'd been in the coma for three months. The media dubbed her Sleeping Beauty and followed her story closely. It was a year before she eventually managed to get home, but she did survive. And at the time that 2014 article was written, she was a 59-year-old grandmother twice over. The 50th anniversary of the accident was commemorated by a service in Stafford, attended by hundreds. Those who had been directly affected, students from Staffordshire schools and many others visited to pay their respects. Also present were the families of two children who never got the opportunity to grow up. Christine Heffernan and Louis Stevens. Up and down the country, every single day, Parents send their children out on trips. School trips, church outings, youth group holidays. They never believe there will be any danger in doing so. And why should they? Goodbyes on that May morning would have been normal. See you later would become a broken promise for three families. It's hard to produce this podcast and not think about that every now and then. I know next time that I say goodbye to my loved ones and I'll make sure that I say it properly.
Thank you once again for tuning into episode 22. It is a fine example, I think, of what you can pull together with a seven-page accident report. They are normally a lot longer than that. Once again, please like, share and review. Come interact with us on social media, Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail. If you do want to support the podcast, get yourself over to signalstodanger.com and either look at the support or shop pages. Until next episode, travel safe. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.